Hey, what's up, party people? Welcome to the Mike Mantel Podcast. This is your friend and podcast host, Mike. So this podcast is an exploration of consciousness, intimacy, and personal growth. And I'm talking with leaders and just like big movers. Big movers? Movers and shakers? I don't know. People doing cool things in each of these movements. For me to both better get a pulse on the zeitgeist of these movements, and also just to learn from badass people doing badass things in the world. Today's guest is a lady named Karalia Grant. I met Karalia through Ernest Morrow, who was a guest on a previous episode of the podcast. So Karalia is a teacher, a writer, and she leads retreats. And ultimately, the name of the game for her is liberation and self-realization. She's written three books. Most recent one is called Sex, Drugs, and Mostly Yoga. And it is a memoir. And she's leading a retreat in Mexico in October around awakening your heart warrior. She's taught yoga for over a decade at least and her path is informed by direct realization tantra and man after this conversation with her i just really respect her uh she's really fucking wise and super committed just driven by this insatiable curiosity and thirst for spiritual understanding and it it's cool because we talked a lot about her life story and just like getting to know her and being able to zoom out it's really neat that i i've just like her whole life i can see that she's just been this unstoppable force of curiosity that's moving its way through the world and finding different manifestations of you know human form and job and life and circumstances and it's this conversation was an amazing view of a person's human journey so in this conversation with Karalia, she talked about her life journey, her first spiritual awakening, her, her phase of drugs and partying, how she went into psychosis, talked about Saturn returns and how the years of like 27 to 29 for her were fucking intense and how so many famous musicians have committed suicide in that time. And that happens to be the period of life that I'm in right now. So I was feeling it for sure talked about fame and ambition and how does personal growth fit into spiritual growth and talked about how creative projects have their own dharma and in some ways are like children that we are parenting it was a really really enjoyable conversation and i'm learning as i'm continuing to do these interviews i came into this one my top intention was to be vulnerably curious And I'm learning what it means to be vulnerably curious more and more and to just try to have these conversations without putting on a front like I've got the world figured out and like I'm the master of the universe. It's like, no, dude, I'm a human trying to figure my shit out and I'm trying to enter into these conversations without 
posturing like I'm some kind of untouchable master. I'm trying to let my own cracks and weaknesses show in these conversations. I also want to thank you, listener, for listening. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate any form of support you've given. If you want to support this podcast, one amazing way to do it would be go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating or whichever amount of stars feels true to you. That would be really dope. That would help me a lot and I would really appreciate it. And also maybe there's a possibility that you listen to this episode and some person in your life, your friend or your mother or your favorite barista pops into your mind. You're like, ooh, they might dig this. I would encourage you to send it their way. I would appreciate it. Hopefully they would appreciate it too. I also want to give a shout out to my man, Will Lowry, SoundCloud, the lowrider, for he wrote the intro and extra song to this podcast. And I really dig the song and shout out to him. Check out his music on SoundCloud at the lowrider, writers with a Y. And if you're in a great life flow, awesome. I hope you continue to appreciate the beauty and magic of life. If you're going through a challenging time, you know, also awesome. That's part of the journey. I hope that you're able to find deep within yourself the some piece of strength and grit and determination that is being forged through this challenging moment. And if you're feeling somewhere in between beautiful life flow and challenging lifetime, well, I hope you're just feeling happy to be alive and to be a human. All right, my friends, I present to you conversation with Carolia Grant. Well, okay. Yeah, Carly, I guess for some context, because from what I know of you, from what I've uh, read that you've written and just seen the things that or heard the things that you've spoken, I get a very clear sense that you, you, you just come off as incredibly committed and devoted to your spiritual path and to your sense of purpose. That's my perception, at least. And I'm curious when your first spiritual awakening was if that's a term that resonates with your experience it is a term that resonates um okay so let me just think back the first spiritual awakening that i had was in 2000 when i was 25 so like almost 20 years ago now and um in my 20s i went overseas i'm from new zealand and i went overseas and traveled quite a lot and partied quite a lot and got into you know, I went to London in 1996 and the party scene there, the dance scene, and took ecstasy and, you know, the works. Anyway, in 2000, I went to Hawaii, to Maui, and I was working with this healer, um, Dennis Prince, and he was he, the idea was to do some past life regression, and we'd done a few sessions, and he just couldn't get me to regress into, into past life, and this might have been our second or third session. So I'm lying on the table and he's not he's not touching me in any way. He's just got his hands above me doing energy work. And all of a sudden, my body, like from my solar plexus, just started convulsing. Like it just started jerking around. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, like I hadn't experienced anything like that before. Um, and it was like it released a whole lot of energy, like something undid. And when I walked out of his session, I felt like I was on the cleanest, purest MDMA ever like my whole perception of reality had completely shifted but and the only thing I could equate it to at the time was you know drugs because I'd had drug experiences 
but you know like I hadn't taken anything so it really it was it was the word that's coming through is it was flummoxed it flummoxed me like a flummoxing and I just remember walking down the street and feeling this extraordinary expansive heart-centered perception of reality Um, so that was the first time that I had that kind of shift in perception that wasn't that I couldn't um, attribute to ingesting a substance Um, and that was in 2000. Do you remember, uh, was it, because doing past life regressions, I at least from like the life story that I have come from, that would have been something that would be like really far out uh, when I was younger. And and I'm wondering, uh, was there, were you familiar with any of that stuff before hopping in there or how did you wind up I mean, I past- started questioning things. I grew up Presbyterian, so in the Christian church, going to church every Sunday. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. Um, I read the Bible. I got the Bible when I was eight years old as a Christmas present, and I read it from cover to cover. I mean, I'm, and I know I read it from cover to cover because I skipped Psalms. I didn't read the Psalms. They were boring. So I read everything else. And by the time I was 10 or 11, though, I was questioning. Like I was writing down in my journal at 11 years old, why is it wrong to be gay? Because it made no sense to me. It was like there was a part of me that knew what I was being told in the church, what I was being told at school. What I was being told by society didn't add up. And I would question my economics teacher. I'm like, well, how do we know the scarcity? Like that just seems like a made up thing, you know, like because all of our Western economics is based on the concept of scarcity. And I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, so questioning reality was very much a part of my existence for as long as I can remember. And when I was 18 or 19, I read um, the Celestine Prophecy, like in the, it was like 1993. And so I began to search out and read everything I could read on the nature of reality while also starting to get into taking all kinds of drugs, while also getting into meditation and yoga. So my 20s were very much about immersing myself and trying to understand what reality was actually all about because I was like, what I was told was not true. And I knew that. Yeah, so that's how I would have ended up, you know, in this particular you know I was always searching for answers and so when someone's like oh there's this healer guy and he can do past life regressions I think a part of me is like well that sounds interesting let's go find out what that's all about <laughs> um, and I had that so I also had a lot of back I'd had a spinal fusion when I was 15 so I I'd had a lot of back issues and so one of the reasons I went to see him was for healing for my back as well so it was well, just the past life regression that was a part of it though yeah, boy, that's really interesting. It's interesting hearing you say that just because I feel like it takes some sense of, I don't know if courage is the right word, but something like courage to question what what's being delivered to us. Because I think it's before a person, oh, I'll speak from my own experience, like uh, the thing that I started questioning when I was younger that led me to investigate was just like, like the path to happiness was the biggest thing. Uh, I went to a private college and there was this idea that the path to happiness was Wall Street. Like that was the purpose of life. And I remember it, it just like didn't uh, didn't sit right. And it's a scary thing to question the norm when you don't have another framework. Because <laughs> like, there, you know, there's nowhere else to go. It's like, man, this thing isn't sitting right. But I, I really don't know what the answer is. And I guess I just want, when I was hearing your story, I was feeling like, dang, that feels so brave to be younger and questioning things like, uh, sexuality without having a framework to place that in. Mm. 
you know, I never I never considered it like that because it was always just such a strong impulse in me. Um, it's just just the sense of tr- I think truth was always the thing that I was not so much happiness but truth because I just as a child just had this sense that we weren't being told the truth about things. Um, and yeah, it's, I just wanted to know. And I do remember too. Like I grew up in New Zealand, and New Zealand is a colonized country. It was colonized by the British in the late, uh, uh, so early eighteen hundreds, um, and Maori culture. I wasn't around it a whole lot when I was growing up. Like I'm Pākehā, white. Um, and yet there was a part of me that when I did come in contact with Māori culture, to me it felt true. It felt there was a resonance there that was just very different from the culture I was growing up in. Um, and I always felt attracted to it or called to it in some way. And as I became older and started to learn more about Māori culture, I could see how just the values and the way that reality is perceived is somehow more clear, more true in terms of supporting life, supporting community, looking after people, taking care of people. So even though there was no content, like what you, what I heard you say, that it's brave to question reality when there's nothing to grasp onto, that it was like there was part of me that could sense or knew that other cultures had ways of interacting with reality that made more mm. sense. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So when you had the... Um past life regression experience and your body was buzzing on something that was only comparable to MDMA at that time. Did you, I'm just curious how you interpreted that at the moment. Like, did it feel like an experience with God or did it feel like a spiritual experience at the time? Or was it like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Yeah, it felt like a heart opening. It felt to me as if I had dropped out of my mind and into my heart and was experiencing reality not through the mind anymore, but experiencing reality directly as love, from love. It didn't last long, though. (laughs) You know, it was just a taste. But what was curious, after that experience, I began to um, feel energy moving in my spine, right right down the bottom by the sacrum and, and through the lumbar spine. I began to feel energy that would kind of rise up my spine and reach like a little blockage or something and there'd be a little pop and then the energy would drop down again and then it would rise up again and I I didn't know what it was and it was just a bit weird and a bit out there but I just kind of clocked it and started to pay attention so that was the thing that was the heart open experience maybe only lasted a day but something in that experience triggered this movement of energy in my spine um, but it wasn't until much later after I had the next massive awakening, which was 2004, that I realized what was yeah, going on there. what was that one? Right, so 2004. So now, now I'm 29 and I'm engaged to a Canadian man. Uh, I'm starting to do a lot less party drugs. So I'm not I'm, – because I went through a period of doing a lot of coke and a lot of ecstasy, but I wasn't anymore. Um I was doing less drugs overall, but still mushrooms, you know, weed, acid, and often doing that in conjunction with meditation or yoga, not knowing how incredibly um, fraught with danger that is. So here I am exploring consciousness, you know, and hypercharging it with consciousness-expanding drugs, and I'm also in a really emotionally challenging relationship that is bringing all my patterns, all my triggers, all my shit to the surface, and I'm completely unequipped, eloquent to deal with 
my emotional reality. And those three things came together in this perfect storm at a music festival um, called Shambhala up, I think, Nelson Way, British Columbia, where it was really like shit went down. My fiance and I, and you know, took a whole, you know, got there and took ecstasy, and then the next night took mushrooms, and then Sunday morning woke up and took acid. And I took the acid and then went and did a yoga class. And literally, I just remember coming into lion's pose, which I'd never done before, doing lion's pose, and like something in me just broke open. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. And I stood up from the yoga class and I walked out and the teacher kind of gave me this funny look, you know. And for the rest of the day, I just floated around feeling like the secrets of the universe were being revealed to me. Like all of this spiritual download and understanding was coming through. However, I was also not grounded in a massive emotional denial over what was going on with my fiancé and he was ignoring it. And this, this combination of a huge awakening with, an ungrounded, um, emotionally immature defense mechanisms triggered person meant that over the next five days, like we left the festival when it finished and we went back to our house in Whistler, I began to go more and more into what I now recognize are trance states, but I wasn't able to witness or hold myself in those trance states and they started to just go off the charts. Um, so I ended up basically speaking in a in a foreign language, like something like ancient Egyptian, doing prostrations to the sun god Ra. And my fiance just was like, all right, we've got to get you to the psych ward. So he drove me down to the psych ward and I was admitted to the psych ward um, in, in quite a, you know, in psychosis basically. So the awakening experience had gone all the way from that into psychosis. Were you, when uh, that event happened with the prostrations and the Egyptian language, were you still under the influence of LSD or whatever at the time, or had you come off of that? No, so I took the LSD on Sunday morning, and it was like Thursday night, and then Friday was when the the Egyptian stuff started coming through. Um, and I did, I do remember though, I, I had a couple of tokes on a joint on the Thursday night, and that sent me even deeper in, into those experiences. It was like the, it was it was as if all of the boundaries to time and space collapsed in on themselves. So I was able to access all times, all all boundary, all things. Yeah, and so, but I didn't know what was going on. Like I say, it, it's it's very dangerous territory to be um, navigating or traversing when you just don't know what the hell you're doing. You know, it's absolutely, you know, it literally is insanity because you can't, I wasn't able to stay in the witness. I wasn't able to stay in grounding and I wasn't able to perceive what was Got occurring. Got it. And that, is that because you didn't have like a framework to perceive what was occurring? Um, two, yeah, two aspects. One, I had no framework and I hadn't been trained in these things. And then second was that my own from a yogic perspective, right, I hadn't done enough work on myself to release the samskaras, to release all of my conditioning and all of my patterning. So when I began to open up on this massive scale, the conditioning and the patterning was activated massively. So all of it started Ooh. going into hyperdrive, you see. So, yeah, and this, I mean, and this is why in all the yogic texts, it's really clear that in order to, I mean, this is Kundalini awakening, right? And in order to awaken Kundalini safely, you have to do the hard work first 
of energetically purifying your field on the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the energetic level. And so my experience was like literally a textbook example of what happens when you awaken this energy without wow, doing Wow, okay, work. got it. So it's like you hadn't done the healing and and then you had this massive consciousness opening and then all of your samskaras, your wounds or patterns just got like blasted open and then ripped you into a state of psychosis at the time? Yep, that's a pretty good summary. Wow, <laughs> wow that sounds incredibly intense. That sounds pretty much as intense as it gets. It was pretty much, well, it got a little more intense. So I was in the hospital for three days in the psych ward. And the psychiatrist was, was kind of cool. He he called it spiritual burglary. He's like, you opened a few doors of perception that you were not authorized oh, to open yet. So wow. he kind of got it. Yeah. But I was still diagnosed bipolar and I was put on medication and I was sent on my way after like three days. Um, and I went straight back into the same emotional turmoil of this challenging relationship with my fiance. I stopped doing all drugs, you know, like I stopped doing all drugs at that point. But a month later, like exactly a month later, it was again on the new moon, he broke up with me. And when he broke up with me, it triggered my internal defense mechanisms, which were basically to disassociate and flee the body. And so I went into a second of like psychosis. the same flavor as the first? It had a different flavor. There wasn't so much um, trance stuff coming through. It was far more um, of the mental anguish, and it was it was the psychosis itself was fully wrapped around this idea that he was actually arranging a secret wedding for us. Uh, so it was much much more about my own um, mental disturbance and processes and samskaras than it was about awakening um, that second one. That also made it a lot scary because I ended up in the psych ward again. Um, but this time it was like I couldn't blame the drugs. <laughs> I couldn't say it was the acid or anything. You know, it was like it was just it was just life. It was just the emotional grief of being dumped by my fiancé. Um, and I had to spend – I was in there for nine days that time and I was committed. Like I couldn't, I couldn't leave until they, you know, gave me the word. And that was – Man, I mean, I can – uh, I can relate to the sense of like, I've had very deep piercing experiences that have happened on psychedelics and as like challenging as those can be, there is this sense of safety I felt where it's like, well, at least I was on psychedelics. Like now I'm in this sober safe state, but I just, uh, I can imagine the sense of safety, just get like the rug being taken out under you going into the same level of psychosis, but without without drugs as the like determining factor there. Yeah, it definitely, like when I came out of the hospital the second time, not only had I been dumped by this man I was madly in love with, you know, but like and we were living together. So now I didn't have anywhere to live and my work's fallen through. So I didn't have a job. Like it was just like everything in my life imploded. And, and I'd been told I was bipolar and what if I went crazy again? What if like how 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 would I protect myself from going into yeah. another psychosis? Did you ever consider like were you ever afraid that you would commit suicide at that point? No, not at all. Like I've never never had suicidal thoughts ever. No matter how, and like my life has got pretty tough at certain points, um, which I go into in detail in my memoir, Sex, Drugs, and, and Mostly Yoga. 
But that's one thing I've actually noticed. I'm like, huh, curious. I never, ever had suicidal thoughts. Lots of pain and suffering, but no suicidal thoughts. Well, so in those hard times, what was keeping you moving forward? So when I was in the the hospital the second time around, um, an acquaintance dropped by and she brought me a journal, like a blank diary. And she's like, I know how much you love writing and I think you need this. And she was like an angel because I I always wrote. I wrote morning pages for a long time, like Julia Cameron's morning pages. And I remember writing in that journal when I was in the psych ward. It was like there was this energy that came through me and I was writing, writing, writing. At the very end, it was like, the sun will again shine in my life. So there. And it was like this rebel, this part of me that was a rebel that was saying, you motherfuckers can't get me down and I will fucking show you. <laughs> and so that, that was the energy, like this just deep rebellious determination that I would not be conquered by these experiences. Wow. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, that's really cool. I'm, I'm getting a lot out of hearing you tell this story, partially. So I'm 28, and before we actually started recording, I was just trying to give an authentic check-in, and it was hard for me to like uh, say how I'm doing without being like, yeah, shit's messy right now. But I'm coming off of like, man, like a, a depression like I've never experienced before. But something that I touched at the bottom of my experience, I was very stoned at the time, and went into a state of fear that was more potent than anything I've ever felt before. But I touched into this um, determination that I never knew I had inside of me. For me, it felt very... Um, it's interesting that you use the word rebel. That it just, it's an interesting archetype. For me, the uh, like personification was this like warrior energy. It was just this thing that wouldn't give up. And f- it was really... There's something very reassuring about being at a bottom... And knowing that there was some energy of moving forward that I could count on inside of myself. And so hearing you tell that, I, I just found that really fascinating that this sh- this like shred of determination that seemed like was continuing to push you forward even through the moments of darkness. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Like it, it is a warrior energy. It does really feel like that. Um, and I find it curious to like you're 28. Like I was 29 I just literally turned 29 two weeks prior, and that's Saturn returns. And astrologically, of course, Saturn returns is quite a significant time in somebody's life. Um, when you look at how many famous people have committed suicide at age 27, 28, right on the Saturn returns. Um, yeah, I'd never thought so- about that. I know there's the 28 Club or 29 Club or whatever with Kurt Cobain, and I don't know, I have a whole handful of people. Yeah, Amy Winehouse and Janis Joplin mm. and um, Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison huh? and uh, yeah, like all of them. And this is my sense. It's like there's certain people who have a certain way of showing up in the world and it gets really fucking hard at certain points because that way of showing up in the world is diametrically opposed to the dominant construct. And being opposed to the dominant construct is a heavy fucking thing to have on your shoulders. And I suspect it's heavier in a way. If you become famous, it gets even harder because of the expectations and projections that people have on you. Um, So yeah, I'm not surprised that all of these people end up committing suicide at that particular time. Yeah. That's a, it's a really interesting point. I've God, being famous. I imagine is, 
I can't even imagine what the pressures are like of being famous. Like, I, uh, subconsciously, I spend so much time like wanting people to like me and wondering what people think about me. And every time I make a Facebook post, there's some part of me that's like, oh, I hope I get likes. And I've got like, I don't know, like a thousand people, maybe 2000 in my network tops. But I can't even imagine what it's like having the whole world see me and like experience my life. That pressure must just be I mean, I guess it either like pressurizes people into a diamond or like destroys them. Yeah, super interesting um, road to navigate for sure. Totally. <laughs> right. I'm curious to go back to um, when you were talking about your narrative, when you're at that low, what was the thread that moved you towards this space of like continuing to explore and grow spiritually and give back? What, where were you taken as like the next checkpoint on that? So when I had that first initial um, psychosis, a big part of that was experiencing oneness. Like I, all the boundaries, like I say, completely disappeared. It's like I, I knew all the secrets of the universe. It was like I knew all information was accessible. Everything it was like the all. So I had that as a, and then I went into psychosis, and then I woke up and was right back in my conditioned mind, right back in the imprisoned of the the mind but I had that reference point I had experienced life in a different way so when I came out of it I just knew that yoga was going to be a huge part of my recovery and I knew that if I'd had that experience of reality that I could find my way back to it that it was almost like a snapshot like the universe going here you go here's what reality could be like now find your own way back now you do the hard work you've had the taste you do the hard now and so that was the motivation and yoga was the path and I literally knew that I just had to show up for the next day because I mean I felt so bad I felt like yeah I mean I just felt like a worthless piece of shit like an absolute failure completely disconnected on the outside this crazy woman that couldn't relate to anyone or anything so it was a case of like all right I just have to show up okay for that's today. interesting at what point did you recognize that it wasn't just about, at least for you, your own spiritual growth and um, having daily practice to move towards that space of understanding, but about sharing with other people and helping them on on their paths. So, and I, so this happened in two thousand four. I ended up going back to New Zealand, which I hadn't. I'd left eight years prior, so I didn't want to go home to New Zealand, but I had to. I had no choice. Um, and in two thousand six, I started blogging. Uh, which, you know, it was kind of like right at the beginning of the blogosphere when it first started to come in. And I've always been a writer. Like writing is just, it's what I do. So I started to write about my experiences partly as a way for me to process them. I didn't really expect that anybody would be reading my blog. It always kind of amazed me when they they were. Um, And I quickly realized that writing about my experiences was such an important part of healing because it meant that I could claim them. It meant that there was nothing to be ashamed of, that that experiencing psychosis or being committed to a psych ward or being diagnosed bipolar, if I just said these things matter of fact, there was no shame. Like what is there to be ashamed of? And so as I began to write about it and had those realizations, I, people started to share with me what it meant to them that I was being, everyone said, oh, you're so brave, you're so courageous. 
But for me, it didn't feel that way. It felt like simply what needed to be done. I needed to share for my own healing process and I needed to share so that I could just totally dismantle any stigma around these experiences. So that was when hearing began in 2006 with um, Be Conscious Now. Was there is something like remarkable that happens when, at least I've found in my experience with Facebook, if I write something that is matter of fact about uh, the vulnerability of my own human experience, it has this effect of like, almost like freeing that part of myself. Like I parts where I might have shame over if I can just put it out there and just like uh, give an honest expression of my experience and then just release it to the world. It always feels like it like it it releases some part of me. There is some part of me that was locked up in shame and afraid people would know. And then as soon as I put it out there, it's just like poof, like something freed up. Uh, I don't I don't know if you had that experience in writing when you were talking about the shame part around it, but I've always found that to be really uh, fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely think exactly what you're saying, that when we own ourselves fully, like I wrote about, you know, not just mental health and psychosis and spiritual awakening, but I also wrote about my experiences with drugs because it was like, well, if I write about it, then you don't have power over me. You can't threaten me. You can't say, oh, well, you used to do cocaine. It's like, yeah, and so what? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, whatever, dude, big deal. Um, right. And so there is a real power in owning who we are with no shame and no guilt. And I, I think exactly what you said is that when we do that, it frees up. If we liberate ourselves. Like Jesus said, the truth will set you free. You know, it's not just a, a platitude. It's actually a very palpable feeling of freedom that happens in our field Mm, when we speak so i'm curious when after this point where you started blogging did you discover tantra how did that get into the mix for you so oh good question i think the first time so i started blogging in 2006 and i also started teaching yoga i was asked to teach um and i didn't have any certification at the time which i was very aware of so i began practice i was already practicing four or five times a week at home. So I began practicing daily and studying. And in 2008, I discovered Shiva Ray, who's a big teacher in the States, of course. Um, And in 2010, I went to Venice Beach to complete my 200-hour training with her, not knowing that her lineage is Kashmir Shaivism or or Tantra. Um, And so that was my first exposure to Tantra. She had... um, a Tantra scholar, Christopher Tompkins, who came and delivered that part of the training. And he's amazing. Like he's he's an extraordinary scholar who he can read Sanskrit. So he goes he goes to Pakistan and finds the original Kashmir Shaivism texts, the actual Tantras themselves, and then he can translate them, which is extraordinary. Um, yeah. And when when I was in that training, I began to realize that the way I'd been living my yoga for the past five or eight years was the tantric way of using every moment as a way to witness myself, see myself, and wake up to the truth of the moment. So there was almost a sense of coming home or recognition that this was the path I've been unwittingly or unknowingly living Got it. anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm curious to talk about tantra a little bit. I know you had used the phrase... Um, direct realization tantra is that a specific like lineage or uh, tantric path 
Yeah, so that that particular lineage I got from a book called The Play of Awakening, which is an amazing book on Tantra. And it's actually, so Kashmir Shaivism is a lineage and sometimes that lineage is referred to as direct realization Tantra. So it's one and the same. Those two lineages, it's actually the same lineage. It's just the way it's described as a different language. Got it. Different See, languaging. as I've been exploring just different spiritual paths because there are so many out there in this day and age and noticing the intersection of how sex and sexuality plays into all these is that an intrinsic part of the tantric path that you're on Mm, not as such um so the, the path that i'm on just to be clear so in 2010 we were given a particular practice which involves visualization chanting meditation, breath retention. And so that particular practice is the one that I've been using. I mean, I'm, I'm on a thousand day practice of it at the moment with the intention of doing it for a thousand days in a row. Wow. Cool. Um, yeah. So I'm on, third, I'm on my third attempt of that. I'm up today at the moment, I'm up to 521, day 521, I think. But wow. so that's my actual practice. And then the... And this is what's curious. So when when I did the 2010 thing, I didn't really then go off and start studying Tantra as such. I didn't go work with teachers. I just continued to work with my life as it arose in the moment, uh, using my intuition, using uh, discrimination, using the tools I had within me. And I was doing asana practice, meditation, you know, all the different practices. I didn't necessarily work with sex in any way shape or form and in fact I never even told anyone my lineage was tantra because people confuse it with sex I'm like I'm just not going to tell people and it was only last year literally last year when I was told like there was an inner wisdom that said okay you need to start teaching this particular practice that I began to let people know and I've been teaching yoga you know for a decade or more but I never told them that was the lineage I just shared the practices I didn't talk so much about the, you know, Tantra because people get hung up on that word. And from my perspective, self-realization or liberation is what it's all about. And the way that we approach sexuality and the way we approach sex might be, will of course be a part of that because everything is a part of self-realization. But focusing just on that is misses the point completely. So because I live everything, because I live everything through the lens of Tantra, um, then, of course, sex and sexuality has to be through that lens because everything is. The way I parent, the way I drive, the way I dress, in, like it's all part and parcel because it's just a moment-to-moment way of engaging Right, okay. But in that way, sex and sexuality is no different than in any other aspect of life as far as revealing real-time data about ourselves that we can digest and use to awaken yeah totally um and but that said you know obviously the way we cook and the way we have sex is there's kind of more energy tied up in sex there's more um scope for repression and suppression and fear and anxiety all of those things and there might be around cooking right. for example yeah but i bet for some people cooking like i could imagine a person who's like parents were chefs or something and cooking is like this just place of incredible emotional charge and psychological trauma and stuff <laughs> this is true this is true <laughs> i also want to unpack 
when you say the word self-realization, what, and perhaps this is an indescribable or impossible to put words on, but what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is literally beginning to realize the truth of what we are. And of course the paradox is, I mean, the more I walk this path and the more I spend observing the self is that there isn't a self. There's a lived experience of that that's occurring now, whereby it's becoming really clear that there is simply no self. There is awareness perceiving reality. And that awareness is not even necessarily um, simply local within the field, if that makes sense. Like the, the awareness that perceives is non-local. And therefore, then the awareness that perceives is the same awareness that is in, or the same life force that is in everything. So what I'm, what's beginning to happen for me along this path of self-realization, the realizations is no self. Yeah. Okay, yeah, this is beautiful. So some a couple words that are coming to mind for me that I guess in the moment I'm looking to figure out how to integrate is, so spiritual growth, I guess, is one concept. And to me, at least in the way that you're speaking, that is coming into deeper embodied and lived experience of occupying this selfless state of non-local awareness. And then there's healing as another word, which you were touching into earlier as going into our samskaras and unlocking our patterns and healing ultimately is a way of, it seems necessary to access spiritual growth. And I'm curious, uh, another word that's coming up, and I'm curious how this fits in the mix for you, is personal growth. If you look at the human manifestation that is Karelia, uh, of, of her growing and like building confidence and building skills and making something of herself in the world. I'm curious how that concept of personal growth fits into fits into the general like trajectory of spiritual growth. Mm, I like that question. Okay, I might come at it in a circular way. What what I've noticed is that people are often attempting to use the tools of spirituality to live a better life, to feel better, to experience better stuff, to have more, um, to have a better sex life, you know, all of this stuff, right? And so they're, they're co-opting the tools of spirituality for what are, in a way, um, capitalist consumer pursuits. You know, like how can I be more abundant, have more money, have a better job, have a better partner, have a better house, have a better car, more, more, better, better, better. I'll use these tools. I'll use these spiritual tools in order to be better, uh, which completely misses the point. But then, you know, whatever, who cares? We all get to play on the, you know, like we all get to choose how we play in this life. If that's how some people want to play, go for it. Uh, But don't confuse it with actually waking up necessarily. So what I'm noticing is that, I just care less and less and less about anything because I can't get better. 
because in essence the spiritual process is one of unbecoming it's dissolving it's stripping away it's 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 uninstalling and and yet in that process of stripping away what is not us the essence the soul the life force becomes stronger and stronger and stronger so there's a sense of becoming that which we truly are but it's effortless it's not like trying got it okay so this is sparking like an adjacent a, a curiosity around an adjacent inquiry which is so some other words that are coming up for me that are very popular in I, I don't know I guess the this is kind of weird languaging but very popular in like the capitalist world are ambition and impact and I, I have a connection with both of those words and I'm curious what your connection with those words are and I assume that like and this could be a totally wrong assumption but in you teaching yoga you're helping other people on their spiritual path and in you like facilitating workshops and writing a book you're help, helping people on their path and there is some way that you're having positive impact on people would be one way to look at it and i'm curious if how like desire for ambition or impact how those kind of work themselves into your internal system i've always been incredibly ambitious like, like totally ambitious um, large scale and in the last couple of years have begun to see the suffering I was causing myself by allowing that ambition to freely take the reins and run and I also was seeing how that ambition was often tied to getting something or getting somewhere or, or achieving something and that's beginning to fall away and in its place is more a sense of um, it's more of a sense of service of you know what's required and also just a sense of expression or playfulness like I I write because I fucking love it I love writing books I absolutely adore the process of writing books and to a degree once I finish writing the book and it's out there I don't even care if anybody reads it it's irrelevant it's like the act of writing the book is the joyous thing it's like so my relationship to ambition has definitely loosened and shifted and I'm beginning to see that none of it none of it matters, that we will be what we are. We don't have to to drive and and push and strive and, and strategize and control and plan and it's a sense of just relaxing and trusting and and inquiring, like when people tell, say to me, I, w- I really want to change the world. I want to have a big impact on the world. I'm like, what for? Like, why? Why? What makes you think the world needs you to save it? You know, like that's a very arrogant thing to assume that the world needs you to save it in a way, right? What makes you think that, you know, why do you want to have an impact to do good? Well, what, what, what is this good that you speak of? How can you know what good okay, is? I'm, I want to push this one further. And I also acknowledge that this line of questioning is a direct reflection of my, my own wrestling with my own sense of motivations. But so I'm curious, you wrote a book and it sounds like you wrote it from just this pure place of loving the process of doing so. And like, at least my concept is that though I only read the first like the free sample of your book, like the first 20 pages or something. My my sense is that this book would be 
good for many people to read. This book would give ideas that would connect people with a sense of either higher self or a sense of no self, to use like Buddhist terminology, or maybe a sense of their own life journey. And this book has the potential to spark more happiness and truth in the world. And so if your book sold like a billion copies, to me, there's like some sense like, yeah, that would probably be a good thing. And I'm wondering, I don't know, do you resonate with that? Or is there uh, some piece of you that's like, yeah, I want this book, even though I did it for the love of writing it, to sell a billion copies if that were possible? Oh, I mean, there's a definite like when, let's just say when, when my book sells, you know, like hundreds of thousands of copies, there will be immense joy and delight and pleasure. And yet if that was not to happen, then that that too is okay. So there's, there's, a, there's a sense that the book is an entity that has its own dharma. And my job is to simply show up and do what is required for the book. Yes. And so, and, and this part of me is thinking, oh, I should be marketing it more and I should be doing this and I should be doing that. And the moment that there's any kind of should, I always step back and just tune in and go, what is needed? What is right. required? <laughs> and there's, right? And there's a real trust that I don't, like I'm not doing this by myself as such, um, that, that this book will find its way to the people that need its message. And I, my job is to simply make that as easy as possible, is to facilitate it in whatever way it needs to be facilitated. You see? So there's a, the, it's a difference in energy. It's a difference in where one moves from. And there's a real softness in it or a delight or a joy or an openness or an ease around it as well. Yeah. Oh, dude, I love the idea that the book has its own dharma because – I have my own creative projects, this podcast being one of them. And when you phrase it like that, it almost feels like, or so like for me, like I birthed this podcast, it has its own dharma and it's my child. And I don't want to be some like hyper aggressive parent that like, (laughs) I don't know, that like forces it to do something it doesn't want to. Like I want to nourish and nurture the dharma of this creative podcast or creative project as, as if it's its own entity. Yeah. And can you feel how when there's that shift, it's no longer about you and the pop, it's more about service and supporting and there's a whole shift in the energy around it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So much less uh, clingy energy, which is never a good feeling. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we show up and do what's necessary like I love the stories of Dr. Wayne Dyer when he did his first book and the things he would do to promote it but he wasn't doing it to become successful he was doing it because he believed in the message and wanted people to be able to access the message you know and that's a very different energy and so with this book mostly yoga like I know I mean I get messages from people all the time who've read it and the way it's impacting them is extraordinary and so I do feel like I've almost got an obligation in a way to support it getting out there. And and I trust that it will find its way. I want to well. make a, a bit of a stark turn in the conversation simply because there was one thing I really wanted to ask you that is not on the path that we're on currently. So I'm just going to teleport to a different path here. And <laughs> the the thing I wanted to talk about was intimacy and 
romance. And so this got sparked up when one of the audio messages you sent me a couple weeks ago, you were talking about, it's like, yeah, you've, you've created this beautiful life where you have men in your life who you are able to share a nourishing, intimate connection with, but where there's not a sense of romance. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to unpack those words. What is romance and what is intimacy? And what does it look like them for, for them to exist without each other? Okay, so I I haven't been in a long-term relationship for a couple of years now. I've only had one in like the last nine years, actually, and which I found quite curious because I adore men and I adore being in relationship. Um, but for whatever reason, that's what's unfolded. And in the last probably three or four years, I have developed these amazing, emotionally intimate relationships with extraordinary male friends. And it's like we are emotional lovers in a way, but we're not together physically, we're not together romantically, we're not creating lives together. And But there is this emotional connection, this feeling of emotional support and of being held by these men. And, I mean, I would absolutely delight in stepping into, you know, a romantic connection with the man. But for whatever reason, that hasn't been what's shown up. In the absence of that... I feel like I've still done so much extraordinary work around romantic relationship because in these emotionally intimate engagements with these men, a lot of the same stuff that would get triggered in a romantic relationship has been triggered, which has given me an opportunity to work through it with more spaciousness and more ease, actually. And it's really shown me the value of having those kind of relationships with mm. with men. When you use the word romance, what does that mean? Does that mean uh, like engaging in sexual energy or is there something else in there as well? Yeah, I'd say so for me, romance would be um, yeah, sec- being sexually intimate and also starting to work towards a shared vision of, of reality, of like choosing like, do you know do you want to walk alongside each other and support each other's dreams and goals do they align enough so that we can share a create a, a shared reality as such mm. so that's a part of it too. right cool yeah thank you for sharing that for me i've been i mean playing with these concepts and exploring what it's like to bring intimacy into relationships because intimacy feels good well sometimes and it's just such a wonderful place of learning about myself but a challenge that I often face is expectations for even if there's no sexual energy expectations for that shared reality uh, that you were talking about I find that those often seep into intimate exchanges even if I don't want them to and so it's I don't know it's kind of interesting and cool for me to hear that you're creating relationships that have shared intimacy but are not necessarily linked to expectations of partnership or or creating life together what have you yes not that those things don't come up like with some of the men especially when I start becoming friends with someone and we're building this emotional intimacy it often will trigger fantasy and desire and projection and stuff in me but I'm able to own it and know that it's not actually relevant to me and this particular person it's just stuff that's being triggered so that I can let go of it you know and so it gives me a way to directly work with 
fantasy projection, expectations, assumptions, all of those um, things that are generated within the mind that aren't real in essence, you know? Like how often have you had that experience of like meeting an amazing person that you totally vibe on and start to project into the future of what it would be like to be in a relationship with them and what that would look like and what it would would work, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 for sure. It's hard not to... And then the moment we do that, and we and if, and if we're doing that, then when we're interacting with the person, we are interacting with our idea of the projection more than just simply being present with how they're showing up and present with how we're showing up in that moment. So we end up with like interacting with projections of each other rather than interacting with the right. reality. Okay. Of each well, other. so how do you navigate when if you're with someone? being fully present to how they're showing up and sharing an intimate and deep connection. And they're coming in with projections and they're looking at you like, Oh yes. Like she's going to be my future wife. And like, I can't wait to be watching Netflix with her on the TV in 30 years. And how do you navigate when someone is projecting future, like a future reality onto you? I I mean, I can definitely feel it pretty quickly if that happens and I find it uncomfortable and challenging. And often I will spend less time with the person if that's the space that they're in, which I've also looked at and gone, oh, is that me running away or stepping away um, rather than staying present and staying connected? So, yeah, so it's something it. I've been okay. looking at as well. I appreciate the idea that you can feel it. I mean, it makes sense to me that, that you can feel it, but... Completely. So freaking awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for yeah, me yeah. anyway. Cool. Yeah, yeah that, this is uh, very helpful for me just because I've been finding myself challenged by walking into uh, intimate relationships with or the other person having projections that I was unaware of. And so I'm, I'm leaving, leaving this like micro interaction with a desire to just pay more attention to what those different flavors of intimacy feel like when there's projection and when there's less projection i mean what i've found helpful is to simply start to name this stuff almost as you know because so so much of what occurs between two people and relating is is not acknowledged and not named and so to simply acknowledge it and name it it can feel quite vulnerable but vulnerability is what creates actual intimacy so the and it also bursts it takes the energy out of the projection, et cetera. If you're hanging out with someone, you say, you know, you just say, Hey, I'm just noticing my mind is starting to project into the future and I don't want to do that. I want to stay really present with what's real for us now. You know, in the moment someone says that, you're like, Oh, wicked, thanks for acknowledging what both of us <laughs> yeah, knew was there yeah, yeah. anyway. For sure. <laughs> I, I like that word wicked. I want to bring that into my vernacular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a Kiwi Kiwi slang. Is, for is it, I didn't know that wicked. was uh, New Zealand. People from, I think, Philadelphia use wicked also. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely quite Kiwi, that one. Cool. That's great. All right. We're running into time, and I want, I'm wondering if you can share where people can find you and why they might want to look you up. Yeah, for sure. So you can find me on my website, which is com. Um, and I'm on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube as well. Um, at the moment, what I'm mostly doing is one-on-one sessions with people, just basically bringing presence, love, and truth into a session and so people can feel what's real for them and dissolve what needs to be dissolved. 
Um, I am also doing a retreat in Mexico in early October of this year, which is going to be an Awakened Heart Warrior training. Um, so going right back around to what you said around feeling that warrior energy. Like what does it take to be to have an awakened heart and stand in that warrior strength, particularly with the way the world is moving at the moment? It's like I feel like we need more awakened heart warriors. So I've been living that path for a while. I'm going to start training people who are interested in showing up to life in that way. So for people listening in North America, that can be a really good way to come and work with me. Awesome. Carolia, thank you so much for taking the time to connect and for showing up so willing to be honest and authentic. I really like this conversation. And I also just want to reflect that your, your dedication uh, is something that like I'm feeling so perceptively in your devotion. Uh, I just appreciate how hardcore you are. And so I wanted to tell you that. <laughs> I love that, Mike. I appreciate you appreciating my hardcoreness. I am. I'm like, fuck, liberation all the way, man. Let's go. Let's find out what it's like to be awake, fully awake. You know, I'm like, a book can do it. I can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Hey, friends. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this episode. I know that I sure had a blast with it. If you enjoy this podcast, please head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. I'm offering an exchange right now where if it feels in alignment for you to give this podcast five stars, then send me a message on Facebook, let me know you did it, and then I'll sit down, take some time to grok your profile, and I will write you a thoughtful and sincere compliment. Truly, please take me up on it. And if this episode touched on something you think a friend might find titillating, pass it on to them too. And I just want to say, I bring my utmost sincerity to each of these conversations, and I really do want to spread vibes and information that cause people to reflect and deepen and just live a more honest, kind, and vivacious life. Because I really believe that the state of the world needs everything that we can give it. It needs people to be at full capacity. It needs people to be living their life fully and giving their greatest positive impact to humanity. And so if I can just flick over one domino with this podcast that flicks over a couple more that lead people into living their life fully and giving back to the earth, then by Jove, man, I will be a happy dude. So trying to do my part here and any help, love, and support, I would just so greatly appreciate. And at the very least, I am super appreciated that you listened to this episode and much love, folks. I'll see you next time.